Welcome back to the No Tracers podcast, all about urban exploration. What's up, guys? My name is Kay Anagonio. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of No Tracers, the podcast, where every week I have a different guest on to talk about their urban exploration stories. And this week on the podcast, I'm super stoked to talk to James Kerwin from the UK. This guy, not only does he explore abandoned places, but he also, guy, he's a tour guide. He gives tours to... Uh, people around the world to go visit different ruins and different abandoned places and he most most of the time gets permission to do this kind of stuff so we're going to be diving into that and I'm super excited for you guys to hear this episode but before we get started I need to let you know your girl has a book out called No Tracers an Urban Explorer's Diary it's a coffee table photo book full of photos and stories from my urban explorations all across the United States uh, some explorations in Portugal and Canada. So if you guys want to check that out, you can head to notracers.com slash shop. And if you want to support this podcast and all the content that I create, I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash just the letter K. You can check out all the links down in the description. There are also a bunch of affiliate links for things like gear that I think would help you explore better backpacks, lights, all kinds of stuff, camera gear, bunch of things that I think you guys could get use out of down in the description so make sure you guys check that stuff out and I have to say a huge thank you to our partner Liquid Death for partnering with me on this podcast if you guys have never heard of Liquid Death Water well don't worry you've got an ad coming for you in three two one from the streams of the Austrian Alps comes a new kind of water a water that is sure to raise you from your grave. If you're tired of buying cases of plastic water bottles that contain carcinogens and God knows what else, or if you're trying to lower your waste footprint, Liquid Death comes in beautifully rugged aluminum cans. Murder your thirst with a can of Liquid Death. Check the link in the description and use code just the letter K at checkout for 10% off your order. Liquid death, murder your thirst. All right, so without further ado, let's jump into this episode of the No Tracers podcast with James Kerwin. James, please introduce yourself and what it is you do to the No Tracers audience. Yeah, um, my name is James Kerwin, obviously. <laughs> and uh, I'm a British guy. Um, late 30s now but I'm from originally from Norwich in the United Kingdom um, but since January of 2019 I've actually been on the road full time so we actually myself and my partner Jade actually left uh, the UK to sort of basically travel and be based in cheaper destinations around the world to assist in finding documenting and, and obviously um, running trips and stuff that is what I've been doing in off the beaten path destinations over the last few well since start 2019 really so yeah um i hope that sort of covers it a broad subject range but um off the beaten path and hidden architecture and abandoned stuff is certainly right up my street so let's go back a little bit and tell me how you first got into exploring how did you catch this bug uh it's actually all the way back 2013 so quite quite a while back now um I actually was started in the local Norfolk's quite a remote area, so there's not actually a lot there. And I ended up actually finding uh, articles online, uh, asylums. We used to have loads of them in the UK, um, abandoned, you know, sanatoriums and asylums. 
And uh, there was one actually down in Essex in Colchester called Severals Asylum. And I remember seeing an article online about it. And I was living with two of my really good friends at the time. So I went home that night and sort of shared stories of what we each other had seen on the internet. And it kind of grew from there, really. It took a while to, to brave going out. But early part of, um, well, very late 2013 and early 2014 is when it really sort of kicked off in terms of going out and actually started shooting. Um, but 20, I wouldn't say the first places are worth worth talking about. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a it's a rural area like Norfolk's farmland, so it, a lot of the stuff there is old farmhouses and you know this kind of stuff. So it's nothing uh, to write home about. Um, and hence the hence the need for travel a lot when you're uh, when you're someone like from that neck of the woods. You know, it's probably similar to you guys in the states. Uh, you have to travel to get the good stuff. You know. Yeah, definitely. I'm personally in California right now and I've been to, you know, all the abandoned stuff around the area. And so we now have to like travel outside of the state really to go mostly over to the East Coast to find all the good stuff, you know, because it's been around longer than the West Coast has. So, uh, yeah, I, I can totally understand the need to travel. So tell me about Several's Asylum a little bit more. I'm checking it out right now online. I'm looking at the photos of it. And personally, asylums and abandoned churches are my favorite things to explore floor um, okay so so bring me into this asylum tell me a little bit about it if you know some of the history that would be really cool yeah it's actually demolished now it's actually been turned into housing it's turned about sort of end of 2017 it actually got um so it took it was a long process and it was guarded for quite some time and it was one of them ones you know sometimes when something's really close to your house uh, this was about an hour from norwich um, I didn't actually venture there for, for for a while because it was notorious for security. And there was one point sort of all the way back 2010 when it was sort of wide open. But, yeah, by, by 2013, 14, it was certainly guarded. And he was all right, a nice friendly guy, but he used to just turf you out. And it was a very long walk round. The thing about the sanatoriums or not sanatoriums, but the asylums in, in the UK, they used to be huge plots. So this one in particular was 300 plus acres. <laughs> Uh, massive site, sprawling corridors, like all from center. Like, I mean, it's kind of hard to explain, but you got a clock tower in the center, and then off of it, there was just, you know, tens of corridors, and you could easily get lost if you didn't know your way around. And that was the, the advantage the security guy had, really, because he knew it. He knew it from the back of his hand. And if you were new and you jumped the fence and got in there, you wouldn't last long. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was just the thing of it, you know. But it was a. It wasn't, it was quite samey, like a lot of the, by the time I actually visited it, you know, it was kind of very samey. A lot of the corridors looked quite samey, but, you know, it was one of those notorious sites. Um, you could certainly get some amazing footage if you were going through corridor after corridor. And if you went there on a rainy day, for instance, you could get some amazing reflection shots and stuff like this. So it's one of those places, you know, when um, it was same with asylums, you get it in the morning, nice light. It looks different to when it's an overcast and sort of moody day. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it was a cool site, but I wouldn't say it was in the best of conditions by the time I got there. Um, but it's uh, very old. I mean, most of the stuff in obviously the UK at that time that was abandoned, the asylums and stuff were pretty old. We're talking sort of late 18th, early 19th century, some of them. Um, that particular one, I'm sure, is, is late 18th, but it would have changed quite a bit. You know, and because uh, it was a local asylum, you'd always find somebody who used to work there or used to sort of like 
go there as a kid or my, my own girlfriend actually grew up next door to it so she used to jump the fence and go and have like you know <laughs> a smoke in there with her friends drink some beers on a saturday night because back then it was easy you know uh, if you were growing up in the area it was like your local haunt you know but um it took some more braving for us actually because myself and adam my guy that i went with for the first time he uh we drove down from norwich but it took quite some time to to sort of brave it because of the whole knowing, you know, used to dig under the fence and get, and get in that way because it used to have this palisade fencing, you know, and it was either over and hurt yourself or, or under. So it used to be under and it was the easiest way. And then eventually they put up a second row of palisades. You'd have to do it <laughs> twice. It's just, it gets, the UK is quite difficult to be fair. It's notorious for it. It's, it's um, probably similar to the East Coast for you guys. It's, there's some places that really are hard, you know. Uh, and that was definitely by the end. That was definitely one of them. So, and then about 2018, yeah, the the builders had completely stripped it all. And I think the only things left now are probably the clock tower and some of the houses are very expensive there. But it's, uh, yeah, it was a it's a cool one. There was a few like it in the UK. Um, well, Whittingham, I think, or Whittingham, um, one up north. There was other famous ones down south as well but i was quite late to the asylums i'd say for the peak in the uk they were probably 2009 10 i would say it was probably the years to be doing the uk ones um you know whereas 2014 was probably prime for italy so it was different you know we had to quickly jump on a plane if we wanted to get the best the best asylums but um that was certainly amazing you know you could spend 10 hours 13 hours easy of a day walking around just the empty corridors there's so many of them so good oh man it's so good i love hearing about you know the asylums and it's it's one of the most eerie places i think you can go to explore just because of the like the history and so many asylums had so much dark history surrounding them yeah well that leads me on i mean if you don't mind me going on yeah the italian one one of the first italian one i actually ever went to was quite a famous one called manicomio uh, I think it's DR. It's Manicomio DR. It's Rocinelli, but it's Manicomio DR, and it's in this sort of not far from Turin. Nowadays, it's it's famous. Everyone's seen it. But when I when I went in 2014, you to access it, you had to crawl through basements. You know, you had to go through tunnels and and literally go over pipes and put your bag under it and put your mask on and literally. I remember me and Adam got there and it was pouring down with rain and we go through this basement access the sort of old school way really the back then it was like changing to i find some of the stuff fairly easy now like if you've done stuff like that it kind of crosses over to make stuff feel a lot easier than it should be i suppose um and we get in there and you know once you're in there it was packed back then it was packed full of instruments chairs it's all 1950s and 60s equipment you know so that was like a proper site. It's probably my first one that was like, wow, this is packed full of amazing equipment, history, seems spooky, there's documents on the floor, that kind of stuff, you know. So it's like, and you're a foreign country, and you're kind of like away from your home, and you're not doing the norm. And, you know, outside you've got the people, the hustle and bustle of the, the market or whatever it is going on by 10 p.m., 10 a.m., sorry, and you're inside taking photos around an asylum site <laughs> fascinating one it wasn't as big as maybe some of the uk stuff but it's it, you know for what it lacks in width it probably goes up in floors mm. so you kind of have like four floors in two figure of eight in many dr so it's kind of like huge site lots of equipment 
Like, there's a lot of it's obviously been stripped over the years now since, but it, I remember it well if, uh, in terms of like an asylum. That's definitely one of my all-time favourites. And I can imagine looking back at the UK stuff, that's probably similar to what they were like in 2009-10, you know. Man, I'm checking out these photos right now of this place. It, it's crazy. Like, so I've I've only been to abandoned spots in Greece and Portugal. So I haven't been to Italy. I haven't been to the UK to see any of the stuff you guys have over there. So I'm super keen to get over and do a little bit of exploring. Um, so when did photography come into play? Was it from the beginning, or, or did you just start exploring first and then get a camera? Like, what was your process? No, I mean, I was already actually a photographer, so okay. it was kind of um, strange for me because I, I actually, travel was my main love and passion, and that's hence what I'm doing now, but mm. travel for me was the where the I, travel made me fall in love with photography. I think they go hand in hand. Like, if you're into your yeah. travel, I think you end up picking up camera. It's the same with like, exploring, really, because if you go out and about and you're seeing a beautiful, I don't know, waterfall or some canyon somewhere, you want to take a good photo of it. And at the time I was in living in Australia for a while and I was working and um, I lived with two German guys and they loved photography. So I, that got me hooked wow. into photography. And by the time I'd got back to the UK, I thought the credit crunch would be over in 2010 and it turned out to be uh, the height of it. <laughs> uh, so I got back and, struggling for administration jobs. I eventually ended up in events and I was shooting for events and for weddings for a bit actually, um, for three or four years. And then I eventually came across this stuff, you know, a couple of years later. So it's, it's a sort of weird transition, but um, photography definitely came first for me, yeah. Um, and it's just one of those things, I, I think, when you you know what it's like, you see the photos online for the first time, you're like, oh, that's just, that looks so cool. It might not be in your style or it might not be your, your take but then when you kind of like delve into it and you get there yourself you realize it's actually not that easy actually people think it's quite an easy genre um but it's not always I and mean, to get something different i think is it can be quite hard no definitely and i think that you know the cool thing about exploring and being a photographer is that your photos even if a hundred thousand people explore that place you're still going to have your photos and they're going to be unique to you and your style and i've had guests on this podcast like uh rum revenge who creates horror content inside abandoned places you know uh brings mm -hmm. creepy dolls or creepy masks and and creates these beautiful portraits inside these abandoned places and so it's it's so cool to see different people's explorations and their photos and like I said, every everyone's stuff is super unique to them and their style. So, how did you kind of develop your style as a photographer in with with uh, abandoned places in mind? Uh, for me, there was two things to it. I mean, there's a lot of document, especially entering it at the year I did. There's a lot of documentary photographers in the in the subject. I mean, traditionally you get forums, yeah, and they're always in the kind of documentary style. You got. Um, I don't know, you've got like the history of the building, here's my photos, my day out, and, and that's kind of how it goes, and that's fair enough. But I always thought Adam and the guy I was going around with quite a lot, being based from the same city, you know, you always end up hooking up with someone nearby, don't you? And it's um, he had a very good blog doing that kind of thing. So for me, it was always going to be down the maybe looking at series or bodies of work rather than kind of like here's like just one building for me it was always going to be that i suppose that's the photography background in me as well 
Uh, and then in terms of development, I, again, at the time, I love colour. <laughs> I can literally mm. love it. Uh, it's my thing, really. And, and um, back when I was sort of first linking up with people, I, I met up with uh, Rebecca Litchfield. I think she, her name's Bathory now. And she was in part of our group. And she shoots very dark stuff, you know, uh, shooting as in exposing for the light. So, you know, the light will come in the window and it's as the camera sees it, is kind of her style because it's kind of like, so it makes it kind of dark, moody, and maybe a little bit on the hauntings, haunted side, you know? And, and I like shooting architecture. So as it's developed, it's kind of been, for me, I'd rather show, bring, bring out the detail of what I'm looking at. So it's kind of like, you know, using my bracket in, making sure that my composition's neat and tidy. And, and I've always liked to try and pull out what it is we're looking at rather than leaving it to fall into the, into the shade, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, and then using like, you know, post-processing to bring out colors or, or, or details or whatever it is. Um, and it's kind of gone, gone from there, really. Um, I'd say it's very different to how it used to be as well. Like you just develop, don't you, over time? I think everyone gets better and gets their own way. Um, and I have peaks and troughs, I think, personally. I, I've gone through bits where I think I'm doing really well and in terms of I like what I'm producing. And then you go through a little smell of like you dip. I think that's part of being a photographer or, or an explorer. Sometimes you, you're having an off day, especially the time of day you're entering some of these places, you know. Um, and I think that, that plays into it as well. Um, it's one of these, it's kind of... I don't know, I've developed slowly, um, learn, I'm always looking to learn. It's kind of like a big passion of mine to learn. It's kind of another thing. So, you know, I've been doing video learning on that side of it now for the last couple of years, and that's just as challenging, you know. It's the same kind of challenges, if anything. Um, and getting a style is kind of part of it, I think, is, is difficult, man. especially now, because there's a lot of people shooting the genre. Mm -hmm. So your, your work without... Um, I don't know, without, you've got to be careful, I suppose. And I, you can easily cross paths with people, and probably I have done, where your edit looks very similar to theirs or whatever. And you don't mean to, but it, it's just the way that sometimes there's a lot of footfall in these places now, and, you, and there may only be three shots, four shots. And as a photographer, I think it's easier to, to spot those shots if you've been doing it regularly. Mm -hmm. um, and that's it, really. Uh, apart from that, it's always then looking at new ways to develop your style, isn't it? And, and do things differently or, or try and be, you know, it's something that means something to you, I suppose. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I think when, you know, things like Instagram came around, I think that really increased the foot traffic, like you said. Like, it's just kind of increased over the years through things like social media. And so, let's kind of dive into social media and what that's done for you as, as an explorer, as somebody who you said, you like do like tours and stuff. Yes. I mean, for me, I'm very careful with what I do, but it's mm -hmm. kind of like, um, I love off the beaten path stuff anyway. Like, you know, I've been to countries like Georgia where I'm sitting now, Lebanon, Armenia, um, Taiwan, uh, places like this that are very off the beaten path anyway. So I kind of, uh, there's two sides of it is in terms of like social media, I got made redundant for the second time around 20, 2018. And by then I was earning a bit out of photography. So I wanted to make sure I did something that was more sort of permanent and full time. So I made the switch that year. Uh, but to do that, it meant that maybe some of my urbex, how you would see it as kind of climbing every single fence 
has to take a back seat because I'm looking at kind of maybe more ruins, replacing the, the dangerous stuff with the ruins so that mm. I can actually bring people there and it's not dangerous, finding more permission visits and with it, finding places that are maybe more off the beaten path. So, for instance, Lebanon, obviously we all have heard of it recently, but up until that point, you know, two years ago, it was a very new, raw thing. But going there, you find people are, with the footfall you get off of, say, the YouTubes or the Instagram, in places like France, Belgium, Portugal, as you know, if you've been, the footfall's huge now, to the point where the next-door neighbour sees you and, and he's angry and there's always problems with France and Belgium, guns involved and this kind of stuff. And I didn't like that. And I knew that if I was going to progress in t terms of the avenue I wanted to go, it would need to be more, you know, going knocking on doors, getting permission, talking to locals and also making contact, which is a much more difficult thing to do. It's actually really challenging, but uh, especially this year. But it's like... <laughs> but you know it's uh also it means replacing maybe the dangerous stuff and the stuff that maybe i can do on a weekend on my own with stuff that's kind of okay we'll open the door for you you know and, and then from that i already had a, a reasonable social media following which you know uh, in terms of selling work and prints and and just putting work on Instagram. But I think the real change has been probably YouTube in terms of footfall that I noticed in Europe is kind of, Instagram I think was already there as 2014, 2015. Mm -hmm. But I think in Europe, I think YouTube changed it dramatically around 2017, 18, where it just got extreme footfall, you know. Um, and I think that's the thing. I don't, I just always look at it as I wanted to progress as a photographer as well. So that meant dropping maybe some of the just urbex stuff to replace it with stuff, still stuff that's amazing, but it's maybe the average urbex photographer might not go to because it's more like a ruin, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, which is fine. It's cool. And I still think they've got things that have got aesthetics or they're pleasing. Like places like, um, I went to Coleman's Cop in Namibia. Kalmanskop is a fascinating ghost town full of sand. You've probably seen the, the famous oh, yeah, photos from yeah. there. Uh, and it's probably, even out of all the locations I've done over six, seven years, it's probably in my top three, just because of how many places are filled with sand and they're colourful and beautiful in terms of the light, in terms of every room is different. And that's so unique. Where else is full of sand, you know? Like, it's mad. So... Yeah, it's places like that where it's permission, but you have to gain access. You know, you have to go talk to somebody and get permission and go there. And they're the kind of things I'm kind of looking to replace with the dangerous stuff, you know, now. Um, not that I don't enjoy the dangerous stuff. Obviously, we all do. <laughs> but uh, you can't, I can't run, you know, trips there with 50-year-old men and stuff. That's just not going to happen. Um, but I always look at kind of the photography side as two 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 tiers i suppose i've got the, the you've got the real abandoned stuff that's kind of dangerous they if, if you replace them it's going to have to be something that's a bit more a bit more permission or for instance in georgia the welcome you get compared to say france uh, you can go and not talk to people you know communicate with them in a, in a slow man, in a slow manner but you might gain access to stuff that potentially um, it would be very difficult to do in, in somewhere like France because they're just sick of the amount of people that are coming, you know. Yeah. Um, and that's why I chose as well the, the, the kind of countries that I've been doing the last uh, two years, really, as well. So it's like looking looking at different places, maybe that the average um, traveller wouldn't go to, 
and combine my love for travel with my photography, you know, and it's kind of different, I suppose, as well. Um, not that I'm the first, obviously, to ever come to these countries, but you see my point. It's just uh, about yeah, looking at things a little bit differently. Yeah, and, like, I love that you're taking your love for exploration and travel and photography and you're, you know, trying to, like, get permission and trying to gain access and make these connections. I think that's super cool, and it it makes you almost like a location scout in a way, you know? Like, you 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 have to like work at it and it really shows how much effort you put into this. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. I mean, I've even had like last year in, in Tbilisi, I've had actual movie directors come to me cause I was doing walking tours around the city. I got to know mm-hmm. the city so well. And that's where we're talking from today for me. Um, but it's like, I got to know the city so well, you'd find like little, you know, little hidden spots and locations. So I ended up doing little walking tours around the city for travelers, for people, I had a lot of German clients who'd come and, and, and I could show them around the city. And it wouldn't all be abandoned, but, you know, you just need to put in the one nice spot in the middle of the day and they're happy, you know. Um, mm. And it's a permission place and you get, you, you kind of get, but it's difficult. But you, over time, I ended up doing it to the point where some, I, I think I had two directors come and I, had to show, I showed them all around the city and they just wanted to shoot a movie, but they didn't do it in the end. But it is a similar kind of work in a way. Um, I think you do have one or two people in the US doing similar stuff, but it's, um, yeah, it's definitely difficult. I wouldn't say it's easy to, because the thing is you've got, you might turn up to a place, um, there's a culture house, for instance, a house of culture in Georgia in the East. And uh, I have a contact who translates stuff for me. Wow. And last year I, I found this culture house. I, I went to the owner. I got Goga, my friend on the phone who did all the translating and she thought about it for six months, <laughs> whether we could come there, bring oh groups. God. I offered them, you know, in this kind of neck of the woods, $250 or something like that is a huge amount of money to repair a roof or mm. to repair stuff. And it's interesting because I think urban explorers actually care about buildings sometimes more than the owners. Yeah. <laughs> because, yeah. you know, we. she said to me, oh, it's dangerous and we don't want you know, we need to save it. They've been doing press releases saying they need to save it. The roof's getting damaged. They can't raise funds. And I offered them money to bring groups and it wasn't dangerous, not compared to, you know, if I'm going there with groups, it has to be fairly safe. Right. You had a concrete floor. The roof looked absolutely fine. It was just a few holes in windows, you know, nothing outrageous. But a beautiful theater, chandeliers, blue, gold chandeliers hanging and full of seats, which is quite rare in this neck of the woods. And um, she spent six months thinking about it and eventually said, no, we can't allow you in there. And it's frustrating because, like I say, I think we love buildings more than them sometimes. Mm. And that's not always the case. You do sometimes get, obviously, people who are really friendly, but it just goes to show that you can put a lot of work in and still, in my in what I'm trying to achieve is show show some of this beauty to people on a you know, and also give back as well. Um, after doing it for such a long period of time, it's nice to sometimes give something back, mm-hmm. maybe a maintenance of a roof or if a place is locked and, you, you know, there's no way in any way, then getting permission is a good way to do it. And if you're giving something back, I think it's it's nice because, you know, you're trying to maybe protect the roof or replace windows. And it doesn't always come off, but that's the ultimate aim. You know, that would be nice to do. Mm. And there's, it's not like there's not enough buildings around, is there, for people to explore. So yeah. they're everywhere. They're just everywhere. So um, it's probably going to be more now as well. So Yeah. 
uh, do you have any gear recommendations, like a backpack you use gear. or a pair of shoes or, you know, anything that you uh, would recommend to explorers? Uh, boots, I use 5.11 boots. I think they're amazing um, because they're just solid and, they're, you know, they're really nice, comfortable to wear, solid. That's a more of an exploring item. Mm -hmm. um, and definitely for photography, if you're a photography lover, I, I actually shoot with a Benro geared head. Um, if you're into your architecture photography, it's lightweight, doesn't weigh much. In fact, in some instances, it's lighter than a ball head. But in terms of compositions and lining up a shot, you can't beat it. You know, it's, it's precision movements. So you use the, uh, the lock nut to do large movements and you do the rotating pin for small precision movements off of the three axis. So it ends up being, um, yeah, really clean compositions. It's easy to line stuff up. And also, say you put your camera down on your tripod, you leave, you come back, enough it's moved. You know, with the ball head, sometimes it goes off the side into portrait mode mm. or stuff like that. So combine that with an L bracket, and, and I think that's the thing. In these locations, you want to keep your weight on top of the camera, on top of the tripod rather than hanging off the side, you know. And I think that makes a big difference. If you're looking to improve your photography, uh, you can pick them up secondhand for fairly cheap, I think, as well. Yeah, no, I love it. Um, and what was your scariest exploration? Uh, oh, good question, that is. Um, there's been some nervous ones. Some of the power stations are pretty nervous times, but some of the bigger ones, um, there's some big ones in Europe that I've been to, um, and there's times where you hear all sorts of weird noises in power stations. They're just, you know, we've banging and clanging especially if it's a windy day and i think i'd probably say some of those would be the scariest scariest stuff asylums doesn't really scare me <laughs> but can be a power station yeah it can be a bit nerve-wracking because as well it's metal and it doesn't seem as safe like the rafters and you're walking on rusty metal a lot and yeah you're nervous from the safety aspect you know mm -hmm. no for so sure I'd, I'd definitely say one of the power stations I, I wouldn't be able to name you one off the top of my head but maybe one of the Belgian ones. Some of them are rust buckets, you know? <laughs> right. So do you have any goal places, places you haven't been yet that you're dying to explore? Yeah, there's two actually. Um, I was due to go to, we were hoping to go to see the spaceships in Kazakhstan this year. Mm. Uh, and we didn't, that got called off because of the situation we're all in. Right. And the other one as well is actually Battleship Island in Japan. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd like, again, I've been doing a thing with ghost towns anyway, and that is one of my ones that I'd love to do before it literally falls into the sea. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because that's the thing with that one. And there's a few amazing hospitals and asylums in Japan as well, more like hospitals that are full of staff, and they would probably be high up on the list as well. Oh, so cool. Yeah. Hashima Island in Japan. If you guys don't know about it, you guys got to definitely check that out. It's a very unique place. And uh, I hope you get to explore it. Like you said before, it falls into the sea. <laughs> yeah, well, it's probably already has. Right, <laughs> right. True. But it's, uh, it's definitely up there. I think the island is, it's just unique. And that's, that's what I mean by maybe stuff that's, it, you know, it's pro it doesn't, it's not really photogenic as such. It's kind mm -hmm. of just unique. It's, it's interesting as, Definitely weird history there. You know, the fact that you've got to get a, ship, a boat over to it, it just makes it all unique, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So if you could live in one place you've explored for one week, which place would it be? 
Oh, it's got, like, probably Italy. It's got to be. I mean, the thing is with Italy and exploring, there's somewhere, there's 20 locations five minutes down the road. <laughs> <laughs> that's, everything's abandoned in Italy. So yeah, I think yeah. that's a, in terms of always having access to stuff on your doorstep, then Italy's got to be the place really for that. Cool. And then my final question for you is, what is something you know now that you wish you knew when you started? Yeah, how hard it is to earn money out of photography. <laughs> That's easy. <laughs> yeah, um, but no, there's lots of things, but that's that's got to be a key one, a funny mm, one. No, but, for sure. Um, it's um, no, as well. It's it's just the uh, I suppose as well the whole you know with the start when you're really nervous, mm. I, and there's not really that much to be nervous about. Most places are fairly, you know fairly safe you know as long as you're being within your boundaries uh, and I think that's the thing as well is actually um, getting over those sort of initial nerves is actually not that big of a problem as well yeah. you know it's actually you know entering something now after all this time it seems silly looking back but I was so like worried about entering a, a farmhouse in rural Norfolk you know <laughs> right <laughs> so it's, it's one of those things it's um, I think that's a twofold thing and then uh, if people want to see your work or if they want to maybe hit you up about going on a tour or something, how can they find you? Uh, yeah, it's uh, my website's uh, www.jameskerwin.uk uh, or jameskerwinphotographic.com. So both. Uh, but I'm on Instagram as well, james.kerwin. All right, guys, that was my podcast with James Kerwin from the UK. I had a blast talking to him, and I think it's super cool that he hosts these tours to go to abandoned places or ruins. So if you guys want to hit him up about potentially doing uh, some kind of tour, traveling tour, definitely reach out to him. I'm sure he'd be down to take you somewhere. If you guys like this podcast, please leave a rating and feedback. It really helps the podcast grow. This podcast is actually bigger and more well-known and more, I, th I think people are enjoying this so much more than my freelancing podcast called Project Freelance, where I talk to freelancers every week. Um, I love doing that podcast. I've almost done 200 episodes of it, but this podcast is already outgrowing it, and I've only been doing it for a couple of months since COVID, actually. Uh, so thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you for getting behind this podcast, uh, and thank you, Liquid Death, for partnering with me on this podcast and being a part of my journey. If you guys want to get a copy of my book, No Tracers, an Urban Explorer's Diary, you can head to notracers.com slash shop. And if you want to read some blog posts or see some of my photography, you can just go to notracers.com. All right, guys, I'll talk to you next Friday for another episode of No Tracers, the podcast. Stay strong, keep enduring, and remember, leave no trace.